It's amazing how one's personal life experiences can change the trajectory of their career. Today, we're talking to Karina Peritor, an employee whose PhD and career path were altered by her father's diagnosis of a devastating disease, multiple system atrophy, or MSA, which is an aggressive and debilitating rare disease. Thank you for having me. Before we hear your story, would you mind telling us about your role here at Charles River? Yes, sure. I am the product manager for the Neuroscience Discovery Unit at Charles River. What that basically means is I work with the stakeholders at the various neuroscience sites across all of the global Charles River um, sites. I work with the business development team and the marketing operations team to enhance visibility of our neuroscience portfolio. But we also um, work to facilitate crosstalk between the business units from early discovery projects all the way through safety assessment. Um, one of the projects we do is identify gaps uh, that help us develop business cases so that we are always at the forefront of cutting edge research in neuroscience. An example of that is a stem cell partnership that came out prior to my coming on board. However, it is definitely going to be incorporated into our neuroscience portfolio. Sounds like a really interesting job combining your background in science um, with clearly a love for making connections and moving things forward. How did you decide you wanted to work at Charles River? So what drew me to Charles River specifically wasn't just the diversity of the job description and the fact that I would be immersed in the latest and greatest of neuroscience research. But once I got here, the patient advocacy and how close up and personal the company is devoted to reminding all of us that what we do is in the end for the patient. But it wasn't a straightforward path to get here. I grew up in Sacramento, California, and began my undergraduate studies at UC Santa Cruz, and that's where my passion for science began. I started as a psychobiology major and then ended up switching to chemistry once I took organic chemistry. It seemed to me at the time that biology was all about memorizing plants and animal species, but chemistry was about solving problems. And I really enjoyed pushing electrons and chemistry equations. It was like a puzzle, and once you had the foundation for how these chemical structures change, each mechanism became more and more interesting and, and challenging. So I went on to pursue a master's degree in chemistry, continuing with organic synthesis um, of porphyrins, investigating its applications to photodynamic therapy for cancer research. I wasn't sure I wanted to go beyond and pursue a PhD, but one of the requirements for the grant I received was to at least apply. So I applied. Right around this time, my father was having some odd and perplexing symptoms, but in no way indicated a terminal illness of any sort. He was often losing his balance when he would walk. His speech seemed to slur, and we would have to hold him upright when walking down the street. He was about 51 years old when this started happening. Um, he complained that he often felt lightheaded, so he drank tons of water thinking he was just dehydrated, and so much so that his skin became silky soft as a result of all this hydration, but the lightheadedness only got worse. It got to the point where he needed a walker, 
to stay upright and would pass out when standing for too long. My mom had taken him to see a neurologist who was about to retire, but diagnosed his condition as cerebellar ataxia, which basically means that he had orthostatic hypotension and that his blood pressure regulation stemmed from the cerebellum. So he was given some meds to control his blood pressure, and that was about it. By this time, I'm already a year into my PhD studies at Boston University. I was working with Dr. Scott Schaus, who's a well-established professor of organic chemistry with pedigrees from Harvard. Uh, Knowing that I had an interest in connecting chemistry with biology, he proposed I work on synthesizing these Bornate optical probes, beginning with reproducing some work that was done by Professor Chang at UC Berkeley. These probes were developed to specifically track hydrogen peroxide formation in cell culture. And hydrogen peroxide is a precursor to reactive oxygen species, which are deadly to cells when overabundant. Uh, It can cause cell death. Uh, via DNA damage and lipid peroxidation. So reactive oxygen species are basically the earliest stages and the foundation for cell death. But uh, by my third year of grad school, my father was no longer using a walker. He was in a wheelchair, and by this time he's 54 years old. I began researching doctors that specialized in movement disorders, I specifically wanted to find an MD-PhD at UC Davis, a place that was local and close to where my dad lived, and came across uh, Dr. Vicki Wheelock, who, upon performing an MRI, um, finally had a diagnosis for us. Um, She definitively noted that his cerebellum was shrinking. With my own personal online searching and based off of his symptoms, I came across many different diseases like Scheidrager syndrome, olivopontocerebellar atrophy, which is also acronym OPCA, or Parkinsonian plus disorders um, as he started to develop a, a slight tremor in addition to his balance problems. But his disease was ultimately called multiple system atrophy or MSA. And interestingly, MSA is a compilation of Scheidrager, OPCA, and Parkinson's-like, as it's been concluded in the field, because one does not exist without the other. So this was a pivotal point for myself and our family, because we now had a name for what my father was suffering, but the prognosis was not good six to nine years at most. And my father was already 54, and his initial symptoms began at age 50. So at this point, I had no real neuroscience training in my scientific career. Um, Yet after researching professors at the Boston University Medical Campus in the neuroscience department, I turned to my PI and asked him, knowing he had an affiliation if we could do a joint and translational project with a professor, Brian Yamamoto. I asked if we could track hydrogen peroxide in the neurons using these probes that we were synthesizing and let us understand what's happening 
in dopamine neurons, which is the part of the brain that's affected in Parkinson's, when we introduce these toxins and, and potentially provide neuroprotectants or look at interesting neuroprotectants. Um, fortunately for me, he was fully on board, um, even with the understanding that we're bringing in a new project to his lab. Going back to my father, for the first three to four years of my father's battle with MSA, we didn't know what he had. I wanted to know why it was turned so late and why it is often misdiagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, what I've learned is that MSA is considered a Parkinsonian plus disorder or atypical Parkinson's and that there's two forms of it, MSA-C and MSA-P. It is coined depending on the initial symptoms of the disease. So for my father, it was considered MSAC for cerebellar because the onset of his symptoms included balance and ataxia. MSAP stands for Parkinsonian. Um, but in order to get a definitive diagnosis, one has to perform an autopsy of the brain. It's considered a rare disease with only about 50,000 people in the U.S. diagnosed. So typically, symptoms appear in the 50s and advance rapidly, which is exactly what happened to my father. And he was already experiencing most of the classic symptoms, slowness of movement, tremor, incoordination, clumsiness, impaired speech, fainting upon standing with lightheadedness, and then soon to come, autonomic nervous symptom problems such as bladder control, sleep disorders where he would act out his dreams. His neck began to bend forward and his head was dropping. He was also having these uncontrollable laughing and crying episodes, which I later came to learn is called pseudobulbar syndrome. So this was very difficult to watch him go through. He was once an avid sailor, uh, opera chorus singer, a sole practicing lawyer, he introduced so much to me, a foundation of education, music, athletics, um, always keeping the mind active and never becoming too content. That was his philosophy. Um, well, he's not my biological father, but he adopted me at a very young age after marrying my mother and bringing with him my sister from his previous marriage. So we're the classic American family. <laughs> uh, while he battled his own demons, which at times kept him emotionally distant and sometimes terse, and perhaps plagued by a life he didn't but wanted to have. And I was fortunate enough to be able to print out the acknowledgments page of my dissertation. And uh, I was able to show him that it was going to be dedicated to him Sounds like that certainly had a, it had to have had a big impact on him, knowing that you had been um, working so hard and made such huge strides forward in your life and in, in uh, the research. So tell me about um, the, it sounds like the medical field is in its infancy at that point, um, mm -hmm. to your understanding. And, um, and clearly treatment's very limited. How did you cope? How, what did you, how did you and your family um, work through this difficult time? You're still in school. 
you're still working toward your goals. Right. Um, what was going on with you at that time? So, yeah, it was difficult to be pursuing uh, grad school at the same time and being across the country. So there were definitely frequent trips home. And there are many times when there was the call, okay, this is it, Karina, you have to come home now. This is it. And then he would be fine. <laughs> and um, and then uh, about a month before he did end up passing away, we had a celebration of life party, which I think is very unique and not everyone has the opportunity to do. So I feel very fortunate that we were all able to say our goodbyes and have that conversation with him. Um, I remember one time when he had called me um, in the lab. I was... I was just finishing up, and um, he just started sobbing, and um, it was really painful to hear my father mm. cry. Yeah. And I didn't know if it was an affect of his disease, or he, he had never asked me before, don't get off the phone with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as sad as that moment was, it was probably an important one for you. Fortunate to have that moment. Um, I do. Re I do remember other times when, when I would go home, and it was my mother, my sister, and she had a newborn. So my niece Olivia was just a couple months old, and my dad was in his. Um, his hospital bed. He was being treated by hospice at this point. And um, I just remember we were all sitting around him, quiet. It felt like hours, and it was, it was probably just one hour, but my mom was massaging his scalp. My sister was rocking Olivia, and I was standing next to him. And it was the first time I felt like our whole family was connected without even saying a word. Mm -hmm. That was special. Yeah, that does sound like a special moment. Yes, so the field was in its infancy, and, um, you know, knowing what I know now, um, there wasn't really anything else we could have done. I think we did reach out to the resources that were available at the time. Um, and I can't look at oh, all the work and the community that's going on right now and wish oh, he had that. But he's another contributor to why people are more aware of this disease. And um, he just had to be one of the, mm -hmm. the fallen angels that contributed to, yeah. to awareness. Want even more science stories? Head over to eureka.criver.com to listen to Sounds of Science. Join me, Mary Parker, as I interview drug discovery researchers, thought leaders on trending industry topics, and patients with a personal stake in the newest pharma research. I cover topics from horseshoe crab evolution to cancer treatment with guests who bring a big picture perspective to science stories. Tune in every month for Sounds of Science at eureka.criver.com. So you went on to finish your PhD and move forward with your career and your work. 
and um, ultimately came to Charles River. Um, so what are what are some of the things that led you to decide to work here based on that um, experience, and what's happened since? Yeah. Um, so after um, having the opportunity to dabble in neuroscience research during my PhD, I went on to do a couple postdocs where I was working in the same disease area, Parkinson's and Parkinsonian plus disorders. And um, the first postdoc I was working in a mouse model of the disease. Second postdoc was a human model, so stem cell derived um, midbrain neurons. Um, and then uh, came to Charles River after a short stint in the commercial side of science. And um, what I liked about that was, well, working in the lab was growing tiresome, and I wanted to stay at the forefront of what's going on in neuroscience research, specifically in neurodegeneration. And um, I had the opportunity at Charles River. And within the first six months of working here, um, I was able to organize a symposium, and the topic was neuroinflammation. And... Um, I was floored when I found out that we could donate all the registration fees we charge to a charity of choice. Um, so, of course, <laughs> I reached out to my network of MSA <laughs> coalition members mm -hmm. and, um, and asked if we could donate to them. And, of course, uh, they were happy to accept our offer. And uh, this, this coalition basically... Um, supports not just researchers uh, trying to make scientific advances in the disease, but also um, medical doctors and um, patients and caregivers of patients. Um, so it's a, it's a fabulous organization that's able to also bring about awareness of the disease. And it's the main body, uh, I guess, international governing body that does so. And um, so I reached out to my contacts there and uh, we had invited a speaker that was uh, a huge part of the MSA coalition, Dr. V. Kirana, and he works at uh, Boston, uh, or I'm sorry, Brigham Women's Hospital and affiliated with the Harvard Institute, but he's working in uh, developing stem cell models for multiple system atrophy. So he was able to share some of his work, talk a bit about the disease progression and some of the patients that he sees. It was a wonderful opportunity, um, not just to bring awareness about MSA, but um, share current um, therapies that are, that are evolving for the disease. Um, what, what are some of the areas of promising research that are going on right now for MSA? I guess to be able to highlight those therapies, we have to understand more about how the disease works. Um, and what we know is that it's considered a synucleinopathy, which is basically similar to Parkinson's disease, in that there is this aggregation of a protein called alpha-synuclein. However, instead of it being limited to just the midbrain, these aggregates or fibrils of this particular protein form within the glial cells of the brain. And those are called glial cytoplasmic inclusions, or GCIs. So GCIs represent the major pathological hallmark of the disease and are mostly containing 
the misfolded alpha-synuclein protein. A lot of the therapies in the preclinical drug discovery phase have looked at trying to disaggregate these alpha-synuclein fibrils and uh, within the GCIs, the specific um, glial cells that accumulate alpha-synuclein are called oligodendrocytes. Oligodendroglia are cells that make myelin coating over axons of nerve cells, which allow them to conduct very rapid electrical signals. In MSA, microglial and astroglial activation, otherwise known as gliosis, affects several regions of the brain and could partly be triggered by an oligodendroglial alpha-synuclein pathology. But the exact pathogenic mechanisms still need to be clarified. The mechanisms of GCI formation in MSA brains remain unclear, but there are two overarching hypotheses. And the first suggests that active uptake of alpha-synuclein from neighboring neurons by the oligodendroglia could take place, whereas the second hypothesizes that there could be a selective increase of alpha-synuclein expression in oligodendroglial cells in MSA. So far, no disease-causing or hereditary mutations have been identified with 100% penetrance, so it's still considered a sporadic condition. But um, having this understanding and newly evolved research in the field um, just this year, there are three very promising treatments that are in preclinical trials. Um, the first one that came out earlier in the year, Xenotide, is a drug that regulates insulin signaling and is actually used for type 2 diabetes. But there's a strong correlation between age-related neurological diseases and how they share uh, dysregulation of insulin and insulin growth factors. Um, insulin resistance is closely related with immune cell infiltration and inflammation. So a lot of research has indicated that insulin resistance exists in neurons and oligodendrocytes uh, in MSA patients. So it's currently being repurposed for multiple system atrophy. Another drug that came out later this year is called FTY720 mitoxy or fingal Lamod, which has been used for multiple sclerosis as an immunosuppressive therapy. And this came out of Texas Institute, and it's been shown to reduce alpha-synuclein aggregation and neuroinflammation, um, and specifically restoring the mitochondrial function in cells and increases uh, glial-derived neurotropic factor expression and uh, MSA mouse models. And in the alpha-synuclein transgenic mouse model, this drug was shown to rapidly cross the blood-brain barrier and increase brain-derived neurotropic factor in neurons, uh, as well as um, oligodendroglial uh, glial-derived neurotropic factor. So um, both of these growth factors are very um, helpful for proliferation of oligodendrocytes and the health of neurons. And then lastly, what just came out in December, a drug called ANLE138B uh, was developed by a German biotechnology company. And this is the very first uh, human phase one clinical trial for MSA. It's a small molecule that binds 
um, toxic oligomeric structures of alpha-synuclein and has been shown to prevent new oligomers from forming and then blocking the aggregation process from advancing. Um, this has all been very successful in mice, so we have yet to see how it works in humans. But there's a lot of promising hope for MSA and therapies and collaborative work with scientists, uh, medical professionals, uh, patients, and caregivers through the MSA Coalition. At last year's annual meeting, uh, Professor Gregor Wenning, who's a pioneer in MSA research, uh, mostly with mouse models based in Austria, um, both he and uh, Dr. Viet Kurana at the uh, Brigham Women's Hospital, um, who's working with stem cell models in MSA, uh, working collaboratively with other uh, scientists and um, doctors, medical doctors, and have formed what's called these collaborative international cores. And it's kind of like a MSA center of excellence globally, where uh, you have someone from each discipline working in a core for looking at uh, genetic uh, factors contributing to MSA, uh, potential biomarkers for diagnoses, different models, so mouse or stem cells, and then obviously therapies. So um, I think there's a lot of great things happening and um, there's new uh, government funding programs that are contributing to MSA with more awareness in the last decade. It's being recognized and incorporated into funding programs like the NIH-sponsored Autonomic Disorders Consortium, which is part of the Rare Disease Clinical Research Network. But also MSA is now one of the diseases being studied as part of the NINDS, uh, National Institutes for Neurological uh, Disorders and Stroke, Parkinson's Disease Biomarkers Program. So it's getting out there between awareness and all the scientific research pushing it forward, more and more people are going to know about this disease. You mentioned one of the struggles for you was getting the diagnosis early on. Has that also improved as a result of the work over the last 10 years? Definitely. Um, I'm really happy to see that almost every neurologist learns what MSA is in med school now, and it wasn't like that before. Um, at the Neuroinflammation Symposium, I'd asked people to raise their hands. How many of you have heard of MSA? Um, and almost 25% of the room raised their hand. That would have been zero 10 years ago. So I think we're definitely headed in the right direction. Karina, thank you so much for sharing your very personal journey with MSA and how the diagnosis uh, that you experienced with your father really changed the course of your life. It brought you to Charles River, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm really curious, what's next for you? Yeah, so I'd like to continue volunteering for the MSA Coalition, but also continue and build uh, awareness for the disease. Um, the last five years, research has exploded, but there's still a lot more to go. And so um, my father, Michael, Anthony Perator is no longer with us, but his legacy will continue to live through me. It's very powerful to hear from our employees about their own stories behind the science. 
We hope that Karina and the MSA Coalition continue to make strides in finding a cure for MSA. To learn more, visit msacoalition.org. We will occasionally include more stories from employees and what inspires them to do what they do. Do you have a suggestion, episode idea, or a great story to tell? Contact us at vitalscience at crl.com. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at criver.com slash vitalsciencepodcast. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vital Science. I'm Gina Mullane. Have a great day.